So how Graham? Pronounced right. Graham? Graham, that's right. Yeah. Graham. Um, what was your first computer? Oh, well, uh, it was a 286 IBM uh, oh. machine. Oh, so. 286. So no, yeah. not, not said expect to no C64 286. No, 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 no. I, I was a, I was a latecomer to the game. Okay. So, what you did with the <laughs> two, 286 from IBM? You played games? Primarily, yeah. I mean, I was uh, in my, yeah, I was about 10 years old, I imagine, or nine when I first got one. So that was uh, some time ago. Mainly just games and doubling inside. Uh, Digger, I think, was the, the game of the, <laughs> of the era. Digger? Never yeah, heard about that. Yeah. So what, what was yeah. Digger? So what you had to do? You remember that? Yeah, it was this little game where you had to. I still, I still sometimes dream the music in that game. It was this game where you had to like dig tunnels and uh, get get uh, diamonds and stuff like that and escape from things that would fall on your head. And hey, yeah. uh, the, the proper name I think is uh, Boulder Dash. Yeah, I think Boulder Dash was different. Um, I, yeah, it was a. I'm sure we can find uh, a link to it somewhere. somewhere. Yeah, it is a, a actually essential question, but uh, but yeah. it's still interesting, right? So, um, <laughs> and you, you you kept playing, or in one point of time you find found programming. So, what was the story behind? Well, uh, it was actually games that got me into programming. So um, that's for sure. It's uh, I started uh, uh, in the late '90s, uh, mid '90s, I'd say mid-90s uh, with uh, getting into gaming and well, in particular Doom and Quake and those kinds of games of that era. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I started a website about game development and modifications, modifying games. Uh, it, uh, it had an original name. Uh, it was like the TC Roost, which was TC was Total Conversions. Mm -hmm. and mods and so forth and that was named to converted to converted2.com uh, if you go in the wayback machine you could still find it there so and we, we need of, co of course the, the proper link you know so you have to send yeah. the link to the to but uh, uh, wait a second to modify a game yes. uh, i think you need a, some kind of programming or 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 a description right, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so that's where i started with uh, quake c primarily primarily those that my my first exposure. What is C Quake language. C? Is it C programming language? It's a, C, it's a variation of the C programming language. It is okay. a language that, that it's software created for um, uh, programming the game Quake. It's Quake C. Okay. And um, yeah, that was essentially my first exposure to programming and like experimenting. And, and basically, you know, uh, the motivation was to uh, modify how the game worked, create different explosions, different AI different movements uh, of enemies. And um, publicize those. So, you know, I got into a variety of different aspects of programming from game around games at that time. But this is crazy. Yeah. But this is like saying, you know, I would like to start running and then you start with marathon. Yeah, well, what can you do when you're, when you're like uh, 14, 15 and, uh, you know, you haven't, you haven't yet been to university and received the proper training. Yeah. You have to kind of self-teach yourself. <laughs> but, yeah. And when, but was it was it successful? I mean, uh, you you could get some anything done. I mean, this is Jack. You know, C is a hard language to start with, and uh, yeah. 3D programming is start. And I can imagine the Quake engine was not e easy either. Either though, so, um, what's the story? So could you just how much time you spent? You know, for the first Hello World in Quake. 
Oh, I spent hours and days. Oh, okay. It, it was a long journey. And uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's certainly not something you can learn overnight. But there was, ni- there was a nice community around the game, around like mods and, and uh, floating around IRC, uh, you know, back when we had IRC and so mm-hmm. Slack. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, people were helpful. Uh, tutorials and that was part of the motivator for, for creating a website um, at the time was, you know I wanted to share this information that I'd learned um, uh, and learn myself so um, as it happens I, I never ended up working in the games industry although a lot of my friends from high school and 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 so on did, did end up working in the games industry most most of them carry on in the game industry so so that's, uh, I guess, that's a familiar story for a lot of programmers nowadays. Just, uh, uh, you know, how you got into, how you get into programming. It's okay. Of, well, often the games is the source of it. What was your first mod? First mod, I think we created these um, uh, custom explosions for the uh, rocket launcher, I believe. Okay. Quake. So it's, uh, they kind of made a bit like fireworks effects whenever you, whenever the rocket exploded, as opposed to. Um, I suppose the regular boring explosions, uh, you know, just you know, doubling in sprites and that kind of thing and making those appear and so forth. But it's unbelievable, it was, uh, really. I, I mean, if I can imagine, uh, you know, the, the effects alone, I, I mean, they are already, you know, challenging. And, uh, you know, with the physics and C programming, I, I could oh, yeah, imagine. These, these were not close to being professional effects, right? They okay. Quite... <laughs> no, but still, I mean, as a very first, you know, programming task to do something like that yeah. is incredible. Yeah, well, I, I had uh, uh, another guy that I worked with. Uh, who I don't, even, I didn't even know his real name. I'd like to find out one day. Cause, uh, you know, everybody was supposed to like code names back then. Um, okay. But uh, what was the, his code uh, name? I'm, I'm really, really yeah. curious now. Like crazy blaster <laughs> or something like this. <laughs> it, it was, it was Shockman, I think it was. Okay. Um, and yeah, he was, he was crazy good at, uh, at game programming, and you know, he gave me a lot of tips and help. So, and that's really important, uh, like for anybody, like coming up in programming is like nobody learns this stuff by themselves right mm-hmm. i have throughout my career like uh really worked for with uh some amazing people that have you know helped me including in the open source right so, mm-hmm. um, I, I i had no idea about open source and uh i started working at this e-learning company and um uh i had a you know a great great boss who uh who wrote the who wrote the book on a, on, a, on a product called apache cocoon which at the time ah, i know was, that uh, okay so xml yeah. is a deep uh publishing pipeline right right and he, he was a major contributor to that to apache cocoon and really showed me you know what, what can achieve with uh, cocoon and Cocoon was actually very, very popular in germany so i remember the jacks conferences there are lots of cocoon talks around 2000 i would 2003 yeah it, something it, like this it, yeah it got really popular, and uh, yeah, my boss, published author on 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 on, on the subject, and and yeah, it really opened up uh, you know the mind in terms of how it would work in the future, and you know that's that's how I really got into open source because. So, but I think thing... you you are the one of the view developers with first programming language Quake C. Yeah. So yeah, you should probably, uh, yeah. we we should actually you know search in the internet whether there is someone else. Who started with Quixie? Yeah. <laughs> There's probably probably yeah. not many. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. And uh, what what is your second language? Are. C, I, I guess, right? 
deep. Uh, C and, and JavaScript uh, initially in the browser and in Java. Um, why why in the browser? Just for the uh, what, what you did with JavaScript? You just regular JavaScript programming like Ajax and stuff like that, or more? Yeah, that, okay. that kind of stuff, and and also to you know to interface with Java applets. Um, you know, we uh, I I chose a transition to work. You know, I think my first job was in e-learning, and um, but wait a second, e you started hacking, you know, with fifteen. So uh, what happens yeah. between 15 and your first job? So I think you went to school, university or something like that, right? I did not go to university, no. I am one of those uh, one of those kind of people who never made the, the journey to university. And uh, I um, I got hired, you know, it was 98. There was the internet boom. Mm -hmm. I had, by the time I finished uh, high school, I had already built up quite a CV just from self-learning and self-publishing and built my own website and so forth. And there but were everything lots, was lots. Quake Quake and the the uh, game re related, right? What you did back then? Or was it something uh, and, else? And the websites, you know, to, in order to, um, in order to, to basically uh, publicize what I was working on, I created websites and design, design websites and, 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 you know, HTML, JavaScript were valued skills back then, and, and you know, yeah. not many people knew how to put together websites and so forth. Um, and yeah, I joined this e-learning company, and, and uh, e-learning courses, you know, uh, were in order to track your progress on them back then. We used a standard, and probably many of them still do, called SCORM, mm -hmm. um, and it's a JavaScript interface. So we had to do a lot of JavaScript programming mm -hmm. to uh, interface with SCORM and um, track e-learning courses. And that was, um, and then on the other side, uh, on the back end, uh, we had um, learning management systems that were written in Java. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really what me got uh, got me started really getting into Java is uh, the building and, and creation of those learning management systems that were written in Java. And um, and and we also had the publishing learning content publishing uh, server side publishing framework that was based on Cocoon. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there was a whole lot of, uh, I, you know, I went straight uh, into the world of programming and, I, and I'm always, you know, like a self, self thought, self learner. Um, so, uh, and, um, you know, by the time I had, uh, was 18, 19, I had already, uh, you know, done uh, en enough to accumulate enough, you know, body of work that got me hired um, in in a role uh, as a web development role, okay. which is where I started. Um, One question, which got interesting. So, uh, you know, I can imagine Quake C hacker is uh, yeah. some kind of introvert. You know, spend a lot of time with uh, 3D vectors and stuff like that. So why you wanted to publish your work? So it's unusual, you know, because usually the programmers they would like to sit alone and hack something, and and, and and if you, they never sell themselves, you know, there is no marketing involved, but you were actually smart, you know, because you, you created a, the, the website and published your work. So, uh, which was, I think, very important because otherwise you wouldn't get the jobs, right? So how you got the idea to publish that or why? For me, the motivation was uh, learning, right? Uh, I've always had this, like, um, I get bored really easily. And <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and um, I have, I guess, you know, a little bit of, uh, attention deficit issues, and I think that uh, you know my wife will attest to that. Uh, she, you know, she she often sits uh, sits next to me on the sofa, and I'm reading like 
I don't know, a book on Kubernetes and like, what the hell are you doing? It's your spare time. Why are you reading a technical book on, on Kubernetes when you know you should be uh, doing something different? And well, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm really um, obsessed with technology and, and passionate about it. So, you know, if you're, if you're interested in technology and the evolution of technology and you're in this constant drive for more information and, and, and to learn, to learn new things that, you know, if I, if I was ever, you know, if I, were, if I if I ever stopped learning, I don't know. I think I would be very um, unhappy at that point in time. So, Absolutely. I, you know, I, I wanted to I wanted to share information so that others could benefit from it, uh, but also myself. So you know, mm -hmm. to engage other people so that mm -hmm. I could. Um, and I think that's uh, that was motivated. It wasn't certainly monetary, although um, the uh, you know the website and so forth did actually ended up um, generating some ad revenue, which was. I was surprised by it was a a nice out, outcome, but it wasn't expected. Yeah, very um, good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you also find programming more interesting or technology than gaming, right? Right now. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that you know I don't I don't play that many games anymore. I have you know my my son has a switch uh, which I can, mm -hmm. can can double in every now and then, but I don't I don't get a great deal of time to. But I think that um, you know it. Programming kind of, kind of, um, kind of scratched the same itch as gaming, and yeah. that it's like a, a puzzle that you want to solve, uh, and you know different ways you can solve it, and kind of stimulates the, the same nerve endings in my brain as, as yeah. gaming did. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so yeah, I, you know, I really enjoy the challenge of programming and um, and engineering, and you know, never want to, don't particularly want to stop. I know a lot of folks. You know, go from programming to then being managers or whatever. I, I, I could, I don't think I could ever get away from you know being hands on. Like then we are very similar. This is also you know, yeah. my ultimate goal to program with eighty or something. Now, if instead yeah. of doing Sudoku's or whatever, I would just like keep keep hacking and and programming. So I think it is um, uh, interesting. Okay, so uh, at the e-learning program, you mentioned Java on the server. What was it? Uh, it, it was uh, it was actually JBoss. Um, mm -hmm. JBoss. Um, well, it, it deployed to a lot of different uh, platforms, but um, uh, you know we were deploying to JBoss uh, a lot, and um, and yeah, it, it you know it, uh, it started off being just you know written in Java or servlets and so forth, mm -hmm. um, and um, migrated to Spring mm -hmm. um, later on. Uh, you know the early versions of Spring, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it was. Um, was it your idea yeah. to migrate it to Spring? It was not my idea at the time, though. No. I can't because what I never understood at the beginning of uh, Java E and Spring that you know I fully got the idea to run Spring outside application servers, but in some projects they installed Spring on the application server, and this was for me like you know it's like why you're doing this now we have two frameworks you have to care about but if you just run spring outside the server this was for me okay you could do this right so this was uh, interesting why some companies back then ran spring inside application servers so you had basically two dependency injections from two different frameworks at the same time and uh, i ask often the question why are you doing this and there was actually never a good answer except sometimes they were not able to update the application servers and they tried to patch with spring the old application server this is what i sometimes founded companies, right? Well, you know, back then at the time, I don't think that, you know, uh, Java even offered dependency injection back then. Um, okay. 
so you know this was early versions of the Java EE and mm-hmm. certainly and you know EJB <laughs> early versions of EJB and I think one of the one of the what really triggered the rise of Spring was the fact that um, you know developers want to write tests for their code and mm-hmm. there there was no easy way to test your code mm-hmm. um, back then um, with Java EE. Uh, because it's, if, when you use it directly, it kind of tightly coupled your code to the runtime platform. Mm-hmm. So Spring, Spring provided this way to kind of write in POJOs, just plain mm-hmm. old Java objects, mm-hmm. and then bind them to your, uh, J- your Java container mm-hmm. without coupling your plain old Java objects yeah. to, to the infrastructure. And you could run your tests locally and you could, um, you could basically, uh, Evolve the project and, you know, without coupling it to a particular, um, Java application server. And it okay. was this, this elimination of the coupling between the, the application code and the server that was compelling, um, from, from the early days, even though that, you know, Spring was quite verbose in itself at, at that time. The <laughs> exactly. And, the XML. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was interesting. Yeah. But it was nice to be able to decouple, you know, just pro- programming in, in plain Java objects that, you know, were not um coupled to your infrastructure and i think that's so I, key i heard just a lot of times so there was the one explanation and sometimes you know that the architects would like to uh to have control over the um dependency injection with xml so some people like the idea that they, they can influence what get injected where just you having the xml which i never understood is- because most projects there was one-to-one relation like interface <coughs> impulse interface impulse so there was actually no even you know a, a possibility to replace the impulse or it was not uh, foreseen to do that. So yeah, so th- this is what I get, okay? And, and funny enough, um, some projects wanted to use Spring back then with the motivations you said was tests, and then I, I performed some code reviews and there were almost no tests except no trivial uh, getter setters and stuff like that, uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, in general, um, there was an aspect of, of, of people doing it the right way and the people doing it the wrong way. There is certainly the case that it, it generated a high open interest because of, uh, you know, it was a way to to write code in a kind of pojo-oriented way, but that didn't stop people from, you know, truly using the benefits of that. You know, mm-hmm. once your objects are not coupled to the container, um, once your types are not coupled to the container, it was, you know, easier to, to test and evolve your application. Um, but, you know, that, mm-hmm. that is what it is. So what happened then? So you had Spring on JBoss. Yeah. So uh, I I went. Uh, well, first of all, I changed jobs. I went to work for a um, a um, digital TV company, and I think I I worked. I did more JBoss um, backends to um, to um, kind of a digital TV service, um, mm-hmm. and then I came back to uh, another e-learning company. And um, again, similar arrangement where we were producing e-learning content and uh, had learning management systems that were written in Spring and Hibernate uh, on the back end. And um, so I created my, and that's really where I started to get into um, open source because I started picking, uh, we had this kind of team of about 20, uh, HTML JavaScript people, and what they were doing were they were taking the the word documents that mm-hmm. uh, the, 
that the authors would write for the course for the e-learning training material. And they were by hand copying and pasting from the Word documents into the HTML, JavaScript content, copying, copying, pasting, to produce these e-learning courses. And there were like 15 people doing this. And I was like, this is crazy. This, this doesn't make any sense. Um, and I, I, I found the Groovy language, uh, which was, you know, just coming coming out at that time. I think it was just like 2004. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in terms of being able to script things. And I, you know, I used it to, uh, with another li li library called Apache POI, which is exactly um, pure object interface. Right. Uh, and basically, uh, wrote a script that took the web documents, uh, converted them to, X, to, X, to, um, to XML based on the, um, Web document content, and then used XSLT uh, um, to transform it directly into the HTML e-learning courses. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm not proud of the fact that it eventually made 15 people redundant, but <laughs> but, um, but it was you know the first time I used the you know, did something innovative at a company, um, created something you know a new product that basically uh, used open source in that way. So you needed um, then 20 people to maintain XSLT, right? So it was yeah. good. <laughs> well, once the templates were in place, it was, it was done. And then, and then the, 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 the authors and scriptwriters just wrote it, wrote into these yeah. word templates and, uh, with one click of a button, it was, uh, it was working. Actually, XSLT was not that bad, right? This was a, this is a functional language actually. And, uh, it's index indexing and everything where numbers are involved is a little bit hard, but um, I mean, it's just, it's actually nice, right? No kidding. I mean, well, XSLT can be really great. Uh, XSLT gets a bad rap. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a, there's the right way to do XSLT and there's a wrong way to do XSLT. And uh, the right way to do XSLT is for you to use what's called data driven templates, mm -hmm. where where the data drives iteration logic. Mm -hmm. uh, if if you if you're writing programming constructs in XSLT like for each, and if you're actually doing the wrong thing mm -hmm. it the wrong way. Um, <laughs> So uh, it's, you have to use the the data to drive the logic, and uh, and it ends up being quite clean and a really nice solution. If I, and, I, I don't know whether you're aware. This reminds me of uh, Redux, where you know any change to the store just re-renders the the views, and yeah. the, then you don't have a lot of you know templating logic inside the templates, right? So because any change you get, the data pushed from outside, <laughs> and you just you just display a piece of of of, of view logic in very elegant way yeah yeah that's it and so anyway the um and actually i also got to um learn visual basic uh, which i was a language i hadn't learned before uh in that project because we had these word documents mm -hmm. and we wanted to make it easy for the um uh the kind of authors to do more interactive content so I, you know, wrote a number of interactions between between Word and um, and um, with Visual Basic to allow them to print like custom interactions, mm -hmm. like multiple choice questions and all sorts of things inside the content, mm -hmm. make and making it more interactive and stuff. Um, so uh, that was uh, a lot of fun as well, learning VP inside Word. Um, and uh, so after that, after that was in place, um, I then switched, switched my attention to, uh, we had a problem with the backend systems because the, 
the learning management systems, what we, what the company did at the time is they sold custom learning management systems. Mm-hmm. So uh, they would sell a learning management system and then it would have to be um, updated uh, for the customer's particular requirements, mm-hmm. uh, rebrand the UI, modify the backend, customize different modules, different functionality that was sold to the customer. And um, all of these systems were in Spring and Hibernate um, deployed to Tomcat. And uh, it was just too slow to to do these projects, and they were not profitable mm-hmm. um, because you know there was not um, there was not enough you know it was just too much overhead in the de- development process. And um, having you know worked with the Groovy language, um, and, uh, and also noting that there is uh, you know uh, the rise of Ruby on Rails, mm-hmm. I thought you know well. You know, there was a requirement to, to to deploy the Java platform. So I thought, you know, why can we can we not you know use Groovy uh, to provide similar similar productivity levels to Ruby on Rails, mm-hmm. so that we can turn around these learning management system projects quicker. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, you know, and at the same time I saw there was like a proposal on the Groovy list. I was involved in the open source community there uh, to create something like a Groovy on Rails or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so I I got involved because I thought that could really help us and I thought it would really um so I started Grails and So you started um, Grace? So this was actually your, your invention, right? Yes, I you know I think GM GM was GM Laforge was the original uh to suggest the idea on the Groovy mailing list, but uh, I had you know thought of, I had thought about it before this requirement. And um and basically what, what I did was uh, I knew that, you know, I didn't want to have to implement all the plumbing from scratch because that was crazy. Mm-hmm. That would be crazy. Uh, and a lot of the plumbing was like uh, already solid from a foundational perspective mm-hmm. in terms of things like Tomcat and mm-hmm. Spring and Hibernate and so forth. Uh, so I wrote a layer on top of uh, Spring and Hibernate that kind of abstracted it uh, down level uh, with a groovy DSL on top. Um, that with features like hot preloading, what about preloading, um, doing development and, um, uh, dynamic finders, uh, for, uh, Hibernate so that they auto- automatically implement your logic for you. Mm-hmm. So you could do things like book find by type and the mm-hmm. method would just be there. Um, and, um, and yeah, it really took off, it took off, um, in terms of popularity, uh, scratched an itch a lot of people were having. There was no XML, um, yeah. <laughs> no, no spring. It was just convention over configuration, no XML whatsoever. Um, you know, project uh, creation out of the box so you could create your application and get going. Um, and it was really allowed really fast turnaround of projects uh, based on Spring and Hibernate. And at the end of the day, you know, you would tell the the devops or you know the people who are going to operate the application in production that you know this is just another spring and hibernate app so yeah. there's no there's no it's no it's no difference just you know run it the same way as you do it with spring and, hibernate. Mm-hmm. and really what well, there was no difference because yeah. it, um it was just a layer on top of spring and hibernate underneath it was still spring it was still hibernate mm-hmm. so um so like the people who had to manage the application in production didn't have you know to learn that much that you know in terms of differences in terms of how it works you know i'd still integrate with, with 
the managing management and monitoring and JMX and all the things that you would do to manage the application in production. I remember when Grace came out, um, it was, um, I, I believe it was Java.net website. And was it around 2006 or something like this, right? Could it be? You remember the time? I think the silver version was, yeah, it was 2000. I think 0.3 was like 2006, yeah. And uh, what I remember is then, um, so I, I went to the site because I investigated Rails and um, uh, Rails, I said, okay, what's behind Rails, right? So I did a, a simple project and it didn't work because all the tables in Rails had to be plural, you know, it's like uh, posts and not posts. So I missed that. So it didn't work. And then I couldn't find a driver for either Postgres, I think database, there was no Rails driver. So it's okay, this is not usable for me. And yeah. um, because I think at the beginning, it only worked with MySQL or something, Rails. So they had just a limited, you know, yeah. uh, limited yeah. uh, database connectivity. So, okay, this is, th this will never fly in my project. I don't just tell my clients, you know, just use MySQL or whatever. Yeah. And then I found Rails and it worked, but uh, what uh, I was already involved with the um, Java E and, and, and JPA and it also worked. But I always, you know, uh, uh, what I what I liked actually in uh, in Groovy is first you could program um, Groovy like Java, and this was your decision to go further, or you could keep it you no know, Groovy almost like Java. So you could use Groovy for scripting, but you can reuse your knowledge completely. And uh, as you said, it was a nice hack because you could introduce Groovy to your Java project, and no one knew about that, right? So uh, we had lots of scripting yeah. projects and manipulation projects, and. Um, and like what you could do, you can store the logic in the database and 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 uh, and and load it on the fly and and change behavior of the system without redeployment. And what also fascinated me in Groovy, how it's called method missing, right? Is it called yeah. where where you could call methods which do not exist and with the information of the method parameters you do something special? And I think you use that for the data access layer, right? That's right. Yes, yeah. so the goal was based on that that concept of. Um intercepting method invocations that don't exist um, and basically translating those into functionality that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you could like that example, the conical, you know, book find by title um, mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of query that gets implemented automatically for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, Grails is, is um, you know, it's been immensely popular and, and it's, you know, got some amazing DSLs. So I think it really demonstrated the strength of the Groovy language as a kind of DSL writing, you know, a way to write DSLs in, in, in Java and so mm -hmm. um, And there's lots of diff different DSLs that have been really successful with the Groovy language. So, you got, like, so what did you, you became a Grace consultant or what, what's happened then? Or So I think like a year and a half after we created it, it got you know, so popular that and I was speaking at Java One, and um, Salil Desprandi approached me uh, from a firm asking whether you know, hey, do you want to start a kind of company around this? And I was like, um, I, I had not like yet thought of that. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, let's um, let's see where this goes. And we we launched the company, um, and the company only lasted eleven months. Uh, I think um, it was acquired by SpringSource. Ah, um, they knew about that. Uh, okay. Yeah. So um, SpringSource uh, acquired. Uh, we were six, seven people at the time, mm -hmm. and we all we all joined uh, the Spring team, and you know, you know, for a long, for a long time, Rails and Spring and was all developed together. Uh, ultimately, every Rails user was a Spring user as well, so mm -hmm. it, you know, it made made sense in that respect 
And, and what you did at, at Spring Source? You just, you know, uh, you just uh, improved uh, the grails or you did something with Spring or what was your, was there any difference to before or? Yeah, there was, um, uh, I was involved in, you know, helping the Spring guys, you know, because one of the things with grails is it was like a lot more productive uh, compared to Spring. Um, uh -huh. So, uh, you know, developers productivity was higher. Um, and, um, uh, there was still work to be done to, to, to make spring comparable in a sense. Um, so, you know, you, you will find my name on many of the early commits on spring data, for example, Okay. um, where spring data is essentially, essentially the, the spring version of GORM, mm -hmm. uh, the data, you know, even the method signatures are more, more or less the same. Um. I helped initiate the project and set it up and, and get it, you know, uh, operational. I was involved in the early parts of Spring Data. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously the Spring Data team took it and you know, made it uh, made it into what it is today. That's all them. That's nothing to do. But I helped get it off the ground. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the method signatures and so forth are uh, defined by, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Or the same in Spring Data is in GORM and a lot of that, you know, um, and, you know, ultimately all of these data access frameworks, you know, have their roots in active record in Ruby on Rails. So we, we can all mm -hmm. thank Ruby on Rails for those original ideas, but, uh, which is, which is based on book from Martin Fowler, right. <laughs> which is crazy. Which is yeah. So, you know, it's a kind of, uh, you know, evolution of the, these frameworks, um, from active record to go on to spring data. Um, and I have, you know, I have that get up that, that up off the ground, um, and uh the other thing i was involved with is you know i think that the the, um, the spring boot team you know t uh, you know they realized that um you know one of the challenges with getting going in spring was the xml mm -hmm. and the amount of you know um work that you have to get uh do to get you know, get set up in a spring project mm -hmm. And, you know, when you compare that to Grails, which was like batteries included, create mm -hmm. your app and it's like ready, you got data access, you got uh, page rendering, you got uh, defense injection automatically set up, you got this plugin ecosystem, you can just add plugins and so forth. Um, and, and I think that, you know, a lot of, you know, Spring Boot was about creating a Java Spring version of, um, of uh, with the same kind of batteries included concept as Grails. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and of course, I, I supported the Spring Boot team in in those ideas, and I'm sure you know it was a it was a healthy collaboration because you know there was a kind of internal competition, and um, and um, you know uh, collaboration in terms of you know creating things around Spring that you know became immensely successful, like Spring Data and Spring Boot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh yeah i was happy to be involved in that and play, play a part in, in that um and uh yeah and yeah i mean the, the rest is you know history in terms of where spring is today and what happens then so you just quit spring source because uh it was it became more productive than grace <laughs> or what was no. the no the other way around uh with the um the after the VMware acquisition of Spring Source, um, there was a lot of internal turmoil. 
Okay. Uh, because they, you know, didn't exactly VMware as a company didn't know what to do with uh, these open source pieces. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, eventually they spun it out into a company called Pivotal. Mm-hmm. Um, the at the time before they spun it out into Pivotal, there was a lot of like debate about what was going to be included in Pivotal and uh, as you know, the open source projects that would be be kept. Um, and it was actually pretty close, touch and go. It was um, nearly a case that um, the whole Spring team was made redundant. But, uh, it didn't happen. They mm-hmm. retained part of the Spring team and uh, the Groovy and Grails team, and I think a bunch of other projects mm-hmm. um, were were um, kind of made redundant, uh, including myself. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and um, and it's lucky that they, they did keep the spring team around because uh, it certainly helped a little grow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a, a switch in mentality because there was a, a big problem at VMware in that at the time, you know, VMware was, you know, managed by a lot of former Microsoft people and was they just didn't understand the benefit of open source software. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms, of, and they saw it as like a, this is an expense. I'm paying mm-hmm. these thirty. I'm paying these thirty engineers to work on the Spring Groovy and Grails, and I'm not seeing any like mm-hmm. product revenue or money coming in. And um, there were, and there was, there was no realization yet that, hey, we can use open source communities that are popular to drive. Um, cloud revenue or product sales, or and that's what really Pivotal realized early on is that they can use Spring uh, as kind of a loss leader uh, marketing tool uh, mm-hmm. to to engage the developer audience and bring them to their product, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how you that's how you you, you monetize framework because there's no money in there's no money in framework right mm-hmm. there's no money in framework um, there's money in what you can get from the engaged developer developer community yeah and uh, unfortunately VMware didn't realize that and they you know just tried to clean them uh, clean their hands of it and spun it off into pivotal and you know hope, hope for the best um in the end they ended up purchasing it back um yeah. <laughs> years later yeah Years later, but um, you know, it was it was a it was a it was a traumatic time and a lot of turmoil, and um, I don't have harbor any like um, bad feelings about it. Uh, I think that um, it was is what it is. But I you know I realized then that you know you you have to keep innovating innovating as well, and um, and uh, so that's what I did. I you know looked at. Um, what we were doing, uh, you know, with, with this transition from to cloud deployments and so forth, um, we had a lot of architectural challenges with Spring uh, in terms of performance and memory consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, in getting, uh, you know, there was a lot of developers coming coming to us and saying, you know, our, our memory consumption is really high and um, our application takes a really long time to start up, and you know we did a we did a lot of analysis on on Spring and, and the way it works and so forth. And 
and and this is not limited to spring right this is also like any any kind of uh runtime analysis based uh dynamic reflection based but, class loading no reflection dynamic class yeah. loading and you will consume more memory right yeah weld weld has the same problem right yeah. um <clears throat> so um and you know this is it was kind of prohibitive getting getting you know java applications operational in serverless contexts mm -hmm. and, and in docker containers and you know keeping the memory consumption down um and that's still the case today right uh compared to um um compared to all other languages like you know go and node and so forth the um you know get having your kind of spring hibernate app occupying gigabytes of memory inside of your containers like, um was not um ideal so we looked so we um so we looked at how you know we could create something but you were um, back then in another company or as a as a consultant so you were just on uh, your I joined uh, the whole Groovy and Grails team. Uh, well, not, most of the Groovy and Grails team joined a, a great company, open source company called Object Object Computing. Okay. And uh, and Grails continues to be um, to be driven by Object Computing. And um, and what did Object Computing before? Were they uh... a consulting firm? And, ah, okay. Yeah. And then they wanted to have Grace. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, you know you can still to this day get uh, Grails uh, support and uh, development services, and um, they continue to maintain and release new versions of Grails. And you know I think it's you know a lot of a lot of this is um, uh, you know expe expectations as well. You know if you if you have expectations that from a from a Java framework, open source Java framework, um, you're going to get your ipo um then you're probably mistaken right yeah um but if you but if you're happy to you know maintain to run a uh, a profitable um consulting business around an open source product uh that keeps everybody everybody fed and everybody happy and you know but and, I, I would like to generalize that what i think is that you know the crazy exponential growth idea is crazy so i mean yeah. and in software so i think you can be very happy I, I never understood you know the 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 how to call it the desire just yeah. to grow endlessly because i was yeah, in companies exactly. which for me it didn't make any sense you know to hire more people or grow to, and they had already enough revenue and they just wanted to grow and grow until they died so I always yeah. ask the question, why you have to grow? And there was no answer. This is like, uh, so I would say it's this perfect business right now just to, 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 you know, to stay small and just be happy, right? You don't have to grow yeah. all the time. Absolutely. And I think that's uh, what a lot of folks need to realize about like uh, open source is you can be very successful staying small, yeah. right? And, and maybe may, maybe you are successful because you are small, you know? You don't have to take risks. You, 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 yeah. you can, you can fr freely choose, you know, what to do and and if you are growing you are always you know growing on the edge right <laughs> so this is the yeah. problem and and there's a lot of uh, like successful open source projects that are operated that way right uh, mm -hmm. you look at things like what um uh juke and so forth with uh, mm -hmm. lucas Eder and yeah so perfect way. Mm -hmm. an example of like staying small focused yeah. and you know just building a business that's um makes everybody happy and uh, 
Um, and uh, Jamos at the beginning was very small, you know. Jamos at the beginning were like uh, three people, right? So yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, the, and I think that you know, the, with optic computing, they had that expectation where you know, they can they have we have this great um, community and open source project rails, and you know, and they have and they have um, really been great stewards of that project and continue to be great stewards of that project. Um, and you know offer the services that people look for in terms of you know consulting and 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 um supported version maintenance support contracts and so mm -hmm. all those kind of things um are all available through object computing and um and that's great um and i think that uh you know uh, um in terms of my time there i was like you know looking to um see you know where we could take this in terms of continuing to innovate and pushing Java framework design to the next you know mm -hmm. level. And and yeah, as I said, I did we did we did this analysis and you know it was clear you know that the architecture of existing technology stacks led to higher memory consumption and mm -hmm. just kind of unavoidable. Um, and it's still it's still unavoidable today. You know, I, I don't think you know Spring have made a, in performance improvements, but the, the architecture is fundamentally that, right? You, mm -hmm. you when you use when you base yourself on reflection and runtime bytecode generation, mm -hmm. um, you are making a conscious decision that you are going to use more memory at runtime, and you are you are uh, are allowing uncontrolled memory um, usage because. Okay. Um, you know, if you have a class that has a hundred methods, you're, you're you're consuming a hundred method handles to memory, and and you know, for every class in, that's a bean, you have to you have to generate bytecode at runtime. You you have this kind of uncontrolled problem, right? Um, where you cannot measure accurately how much memory your or startup your application is gonna gonna generate. Um, and you know, there's all sorts of workarounds. Uh, you can in Spring, you can like take features away and you can you know not use dependency injection by annotations and you can register your beans programmatically and you can uh, do things that basically eliminate the kind of um productivity features of, of, of spring you know, what i remember at the beginning of the spring in the official documentation of spring just there was like a statement don't use annotations for dependency injection they are not production ready so the mm -hmm. auto wired. So I remember, and uh, the, there was the official no suggestion like uh, use the XML based approach, and uh, yeah, you could now now full circle. You can do it again, right? So you could remove annotations, productivity, and yeah, YAML um, maybe. As I mean, you know, XML is out of fashion. That's just YAML a little bit more popular. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, I think we saw on that. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I think that you know there's. There's, there's certainly you know workarounds to, but the thing is that the, the annotation based programming model, annotations really re revolutionize productivity yeah. on the Java space. So, yeah. you know, most developers are used to that way of doing things. So if you yeah. tell them you know to do something else, um, that just doesn't like fly. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah. So with Micronaut, we 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 investigated alternative ways. Uh, so you started Micronaut. Yes. Yes. Was uh, yeah, the name was your your idea? It was. Yes. It's a great name. I hope. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we went through a number of different names, but ended up with that with Micronaut. And um, 
yeah, I think, um, yeah, the, yeah, it was, um, about, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was nice starting with a, with a clean slate and thinking about, I'm going to look, you know, use my kind of 13 years of experience working, building kind of grails and spring apps. And I'm going to build something that's going to address like mm -hmm. all of the problems architecturally with these frameworks. Um, maybe it introduces some other ones, <laughs> architectural problems, but, um, uh, but you know, certainly not as, as great in terms of runtime as, uh, as, um, what exists today. And I think that, uh, you know, what we, you know, what we wanted to do is so that is to be something that when your application starts up, it was already pre-wired together, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and eliminate the use of reflection completely or eliminate the least use of runtime grid proxies or run, runtime by code generation, eliminate completely dynamic class loading so that everything was just like the system class loader. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so, so much, I think over the years, so much productivity was lost in spring where, you know, um, trying to figure out, you know, class loading problems and, mm -hmm. um, you know, because there were, there were, there were good reasons to have custom class loaders in the days of application servers, yeah. because, because you need to be able to deploy and redeploy your application, mm -hmm. undeploy and redeploy your application mm -hmm. to a running JVM. But in a containerized world where you, you're building runnable jar files, it serves absolutely zero purpose having a yeah. class load, a yeah. custom class load, yeah. and done a class loading. There's nothing. There's no. There's no need for it. Um, just adds complexity, overhead, and bigger stack traces mm -hmm. to the to the problem. And, and that's actually a, a, another thing that was really nice to address. You know, spring has become spring. When spring, they, they, you have these like massive stack traces um, due to the use of like uh, runtime bytecode generation and reflection and, mm -hmm. and, and so forth and, you know, the different layers of the stack, the, the stack traces were so big in spring that, uh, for startup errors, they actually ended up producing their own message, uh, startup exception handler that kind of got rid of the, the stack trace and just okay. kind of tried to give you some error diagnosis. Um, so if you get like a dependency injection error in spring nowadays, it doesn't actually show you the stack trace. It shows you like the diagnostic message, um, cause the way it kind of hide how big those stack traces are. Um, and, um, yeah, just to get rid of the, those kind of stack traces, uh, in Micronaut where, because you're doing direct dispatch and there's no reflection, you know, this, when, you're, when something goes wrong, the stack trace is really short and concise. Um, so what you are doing other... in Micronode is that at start, you are generating all the necessary bytecode and you have one single class loader, so basically it behaves like a main method with a couple of classes, right? Yep, that's, it. that's what it is. Uh, we have, we, Micronode works via um, uh, annotation processes. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things is, you know, when Spring was created, uh, annotation processes didn't exist. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they're much later addition to to the Java ecosystem, and, and they were already leveraged significantly by the Android community. If you look at if you look at Android uh, and Java, there is um, you know there's not a single Android framework or tool that uses reflection. Mm -hmm. There's just none. Reflection is reflection is is possible on an Android, but nobody uses it because mm -hmm. because of the performance problems it introduces, right? Um, so uh, you have a lot. But of no one, that... no one talks about mobile native, right? So we're always talking yeah. about cloud native, but there is no mobile native development. This would be something like this, so exactly the same, right? 
whether it yeah. runs on Android or in the cloud, is a similar similar challenges. Yeah, and I, and I always thought like you know why why do we you know why are we being less efficient on the server side? Is it just because you know we've got lots of memory and lots of processors, so we just use it all, right? Let's yeah. just use gigabytes of memory just because we can. Uh, I don't think that's the right um, mentality. You know, if there's an opportunity to be more efficient, you you should be try to be more efficient. Uh, and um, so, you know, with Microsoft, we hook into your your compiler, um, and that actually uh, provides a lot of benefit beyond just like being able to pre-compute uh, using additional bytecode. You know, to how the framework works. We can also do things like fail compilation fail compilation when um, when you're using mm -hmm. when you're using uh, the framework the wrong way, or or when you're doing something incorrect with the framework, um, and we can fail compilation and point to the exact line of code in the source code where people uh, are doing something wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So that um, so like error messages uh, in in Micronaut is like one of the things we want to improve because a lot of times in the Spring world, you know, people get confused by the runtime error message they're receiving. Because you know they've done something wrong in structuring their source code, and there's no validation at the compilation level. So to you know just to catch those errors early um, and address them was like another design goal. So um, yeah, and and essentially with Micronaut, you know what we did in terms of the points at which your framework interacts with your application, there's only very few of them, right? There's the the points at which a framework needs to invoke your application mm -hmm. are are like um, the endpoints in, mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a REST uh, controller or mm -hmm. you know resource, whatever you want to call it, um, or, or um, and things like um, timers. The, yeah, yeah, scheduled tasks. That's when, that's where it needs to invoke it, and then uh, at persistence level and serialization level, you've got a set of entities. Mm, that you need to save the database and read back or, or send over the wire to JSON. Those are the points of reflection needed in a framework, right? And uh, we basically drew something that eliminates the need for reflection for, at those points. So we generate a method handle at compilation time, just at the places the framework needs them. So that means we only have like um, certain, you know, a few, much fewer, way fewer objects than child.lang or reflect.methods, right? We have like, Four method handles in your application, or five or six, or whatever it takes to to, to implement the, the logic in your app. Um, and then we implemented this support for um, a, a replacement for Bean Introspector. So there's a class in Java called Java.Beans.Introspector, um, which you know was used a lot in the spring and um, in the early days to obtain um, you know information about the properties of a class, uh, things like data binding and validation and so forth. Um, and uh, so we wrote a compilation time version of that and we plugged it into things like Jackson and into uh, in Micronodata JDBC so that you can serialize JSON back and forth without using reflection. You can read and write to a SQL database without using reflection. You can, uh, you don't need to ever use any um, runtime good proxies. Um, and, you know, we're taking that, that concept uh, further and further as we integrate it into more aspects. Um, uh, recently, we added support for compilation time, support for Hibernate proxies, so even if you're using Hibernate and JPA. But how this, you, how this works just for me, so 
let's assume we get an XML object because it's easier or a JSON doesn't matter. So in JSON object, I uh, have to know, you know, the type on the other side. And then what you would do is you will pass, um, let's say type name and value to your method handle. And in method handle, what you have generated basically a switch statement, something like this, right? Where you know exactly, okay, if this occurs, I call this setter or this because something like yeah, this, we, right? We generate essentially more, more or less equivalence to the reflection API that we have uh, Java. You know, if you think of Java land or reflect method, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can get the name of the method, you can get the comments types, um, and you can invoke a method with it, right? Um, and we have uh, an interface called ex executable method, which again exposes the method name, exposes annotations, annotation metadata about that method without actually reading the annotations themselves. Um, so uh, kind of uh, computing it and you know merging it all into a kind of form where we can read the annotations. And it, it, it adds an invocation handle so that you can invoke the method. Um, Which is hard, hard coded, right? Because the, 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 the handle yeah. was generated by the compiler. This is the entire trick. It's so a it, direct. It's so direct it looks ugly. So from the you know design perspective, it is uh, lots of repetition, but it's crazy fast on small, right? Because and because it's generated by the compiler, no one cares. So this is just yes, and yeah. also it's it's static code, right? So that means it's much easier for the uh, the JIT to inline because mm -hmm. you know it's direct method yeah. invocation. Yeah. Um, and it's fast, right? It's really, really fast because you know if you look at the history of where this has gone, you know people started using reflection um in the beginning and then they realized damn this this reflection thing is quite relatively slow it's the to... slowest thing in java you could actually do was reflection yeah of, still yeah it's, it's still reflection right so the, the so then you had the emergence of things like cglib uh mm -hmm. to try and generate bytecode at runtime yeah. to invoke the method which again that, that means you're like using more memory consumption at runtime because you have to generate mm -hmm. bytecode in storage mm -hmm. um then you had Java Assist because CTLF was, wasn't had problems or whatever else. Um, today you have ByteBuddy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a whole line, lineage of libraries that uh, for runtime generation of bytecode um, in order to support uh, faster method invocation. And on the JVM side, you had uh, the creation of method handles and, and um, in order to try and improve the situation as well. Uh, Question. That, uh, were Quarkus people inspired by you, or was it an accident that you started both in, in doing actually the same? You know that the history. So, um, well, if we look at the history, um, so we we announced Micronaut for the first time March two thousand and eighteen, um, and then we we open sourced it in May two thousand and eighteen. Mm -hmm. I did I did a presentation that at uh, DevNexus uh, in November that year, mm -hmm. where, where sorry, uh, DevOps, sorry, mm -hmm. um, where Emmanuel Bernard was, attended my microphone talk. Okay. Uh, and um, and uh, they announced Quarkus in January, I believe, February mm -hmm. following year. Um, if you look at the history of the Quarkus repository, the first commit was one month after we open sourced Micronaut. Oh, okay. So I will I will let you know, you know, draw your own conclusions yeah. um, based on that that information. There's also various, uh, you know, comment uh, comments in the in the history of their repository where they erased references to Micronaut. So, oh, okay. Um, 
They knew about so, it. Yeah. But what uh, what I remember, I think you also had a talk at uh, the uh, DevOx Belgium. I think mm -hmm. it was you or someone else. Yeah. And uh, I was right after you. Yeah. My talk. And uh, Micronauts a great name and there was lots of interest and uh, there were um, and I think I, I don't know when it was. It could be 2018 it was actually. Yeah. It, it was right. November to uh, was, was it you? And I came after yes. you. Yeah. Yes. And uh, then I the first time I heard about Micronaut I think and um and then I got lots of questions regarding Micronaut at the I, I have some like a question and answer show so AXDV is called. And um what I really like is the idea what I didn't like at all, that you invented your own annotations and that you have your own ecosystem. And I think this was a mistake because for me, I, you know, um, in, in my, I'm just consultant. In, in my business, I just, you know, I'm basically doing the same for 20 years. So it's the same API with better and better servers and runtimes and everyone is happy. But it's really hard, you know, to convince old clients to say, now let's stop. We do something completely different. Right. If you move now from application servers to Quarkus, let's say, or Helidon, uh, not a big deal. No one actually cares a lot because it's the same programming model. And I don't have, you know, to justify myself one why it runs faster because, I mean, it, it is it's going better. But if I have to change the entire API and to relearn, you know, my knowledge is a big deal. And I think this is what my, my persistent criticism to Micronode that you invented your own API. And uh, this is easy to get. So for me, it was understandable. But how I can, you know, I cannot go to companies. So now let's, we ditch everything or we might have migration to something else because really big companies are sick of migrations is what I can tell you. <laughs> no one likes to migrate without, just to save memory, right? And the next problem is, I had also the chat with the Quarkus guys and Red Hat guys. Um, the enterprise projects don't have these memory issues a lot because let's imagine if you have a huge enterprise project, maybe you have four nodes running in production. Whether you're spending, you know, 100 euros more or less up a month, it is not a big deal. Uh, if you have a, if you're a startup and uh, let's say Netflix is not a startup uh, and you're operating a Netflix scale, it's a complete different story, right? But in, in my projects, they're mostly, you know, let's say boring projects with large companies. So if you would even save, you know, 40% of the, of, of RAM, Uh, the manager will ask me, you know, what I can save on Amazon in Asia. So, okay, we save, you know, 50% of RAM, it means 200 euros a month. It's okay, what they are doing here, right? So this is a little bit different story, but it's very important to be leaner. Otherwise, at the beginning of the project, you know, developers will just pick Go or Node because they don't like the fact that Java is bloated, right? But uh, if the project already runs, it's really hard to, to convince someone, you know, to, to refactor just because of memory. So I think... Yeah. Why you why you invented your own API? I always wanted to, you know to ask you this. So uh, I'll address you know some of those questions. The uh, first of all, we were we did uh, want to support standards um, at the beginning of Micronaut, and in fact, we did an evaluation of CDI. Mm -hmm. um, but the there were parts of the API in CDI and in others that were coupled to the use of reflection and um so we knew we could not we could not be spit compliant mm -hmm. and you know we did not have the weight in terms of industry name uh like red hat for example mm -hmm. to come out to come out with a non-spit compliant implementation like focus mm -hmm. and say this is okay right mm -hmm. We, we we had a feeling that if we did that, we would upset a whole bunch of people because okay. we would be creating 
putting out something using specification-based APIs, but that was not spec compliant. Okay. Um, as it happens, uh, Red Hat and Quarkus ended up doing that anyway yeah. uh, with 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 Quarkus, uh, which is not spec compliant. Um, yeah. uh, you know, with any of the specifications that it's that it's claiming to support. Um, so, in in hindsight, yeah, maybe it would have been better to just come up with uh, standards-based uh, APIs and forget about spec compliance and look where it goes. But we did not want to, um, to yeah, do that right. yet. Yeah. Um, and the other the other thing was uh, that um, if you look at the design of the the API of of Micronaut, is that we we myself and all the developers on it are form, former former uh, Spring developers. And we wanted to create an API and an, and an experience that was easy to migrate migrate to from Spring. Oh, okay. Um, and and the and fundamentally, <clears throat> fundamentally, Spring is um, 85 percent of the uh, addressable market in terms of adoption of Java frameworks. Um, I would say. Uh, and you know that hasn't necessarily changed um, because there's a lot of Spring developers and a lot of Spring applications out there. Uh, so you know we wanted to create something that appealed greatly to to Spring developers and was easy to learn if you're a if you're a Spring developer. And that that is uh, if you're a Spring developer, Micro is, is currently much easier to learn. Oh, now um, no, I understood. <laughs> then. Than Quarkus, for example, because it's structured and implemented very in a very similar manner to the, to the way Spring Spring is structured. Um, I would say you know Micronaut is can be kind of regarded as like Spring without um, you know with the kind of the bloated bits taken out and um, and kind of merging. The, you know, Spring has this long history. Um, where you have this project, this one project on one side called Spring Framework, mm-hmm. which is kind of the, the core, mm-hmm. and you, you have this other project on the other side, which is called Spring Boot, mm-hmm. and they kind of are separate and set separate separately, and there's this decoupling for some reason, uh, which you know, if I w- I would just merge those two together and you know call it one thing, but not nowadays because it's uh, because there's lots of like layers in between and lots of legacy that has to be maintained by Spring Framework. Um, what and... I, uh, just 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 opinion on that. What I did, I think, was ten years ago. So I did a JavaFX work a lot, and uh, and I I, uh, I thought about you know how to. The problem was there was a designer with XML where you can just sim builder or you can just you know uh, create the user interfaces in XML, but this was generated code, and I said how we can separate that, and and there was a possibility to create a kind of dependency injection. What I did. And the first problem, I wanted to use uh, dependency um, annotations. And I thought, okay, how to name the annotation? And what I did is the, the very first thing is I, p- I picked the uh, JSR330 at inject. So without any thinking, you know, about spec compliance, like at least it looks like CDI. It, 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 it will, there, is no, there are no scopes, but, you know, the API is the same. I don't have to think twice. And I took a look at Maven. They're also using plugins, the at inject. And even Eclipse, uh, I think the plugin development, you can also use the... Uh, from Rod Johnson, this at inject and prov- do you know the these script? So the CDI is based on two layers. It's the JSR two ninety nine, I think. This is the 
request scopes, application scopes, and all the producers they have stuff. And this came stuff which came from actually Spring. Rod Johnson was the um, at inject singleton, and I think provided uh, just three annotations. So um, and um, yeah, but it's too late. But I never understood this. And it was, uh, but this is a good answer actually. And uh, back then, uh, I don't know whether there would be an issue because you know um, it should work in eighty percent of all cases. I would say. And uh, and you know uh, at the sun time I think you know until two thousand nine they were very strict about the compliance. So back then, if the server was not Java E compliant, it was a big deal. And now I would say um, Quarkus is not compliant, but I also don't care. You know, if I can easily port my Whitefly to Quarkus and everyone is happy and it works, I don't care. And what I know is, if it breaks, then I can port it to Helidon. This is this is the beauty because uh, Helidon is uh, is compliant, so it will maybe it will break you know some some parts, but it's not a big deal. But I don't have to rethink the API. So for me as developer, the API is very important uh, that I don't have you know to recompile the stuff, and it should just I should be able to you know put the war or jar or 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 rebuild it with Maven and see whether it starts up. So if it starts up and and I see the errors, I'm already happy without you know too much fiddling. So first of all, on that subject. Um... Micronaut already does support JSR three thirty. Um so the we we made an effort to support standards where we could. Super. So uh, so Micronaut JSR JSR three thirty is um works fine and we and we, we have the TCK running in Micronaut. Uh, yeah. if you look at the test suite it's there. And we passed the JSR three thirty TCK. Um, it, it was a specification, like you said, that was simple enough that that it didn't that didn't have massive overreach. Mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, possible to support, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the problem for us with CDI was that it is a specification that includes massive overreach, right? It, yeah. it, it's 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 huge yeah. um, and includes all sorts of things that for for you know. A lot of developers are not are not relevant today. Things like conversation scope and, and you know, amongst other things. Yeah. Um, and also had this coupling to reflection based approaches, particularly with the runtime extension, portable extension model. So uh, we knew we were not going to be able to support it. Uh, that's why we didn't make an effort to do so. And mm-hmm. uh, JSR three thirty, on the other hand, is something that we knew we could support. And therefore, we made efforts to support it. And we also we also did the same thing with JaxRS, right? There's a there's a Micronaut JaxRS module mm-hmm. which you can add, and you can use JaxRS annotations in Micronaut mm-hmm. um, and uh, build your application completely with JaxRS annotations. And we did the same thing with Bean validation. Micronaut has its own implementation of Bean validation, okay. uh, which uh, uses the pre-computed metadata um, from the Bean validator. Um, annotations mm-hmm. and uh, it's much leaner and lighter. It's like 200 kilobyte JAR file compared to Hibernate Validator, which is like two and a half megabyte or something, mm-hmm. and starts up instantaneously and doesn't have all the legacy that Hibernate Validator, Validator, Validator has. And um, and that is you all using the Java JavaX validation package at the moment. We'll be switching it to Jakarta in Micronaut 3. Um, but you can use those uh, validation annotations. So if you look at it, if you're building an application and you 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 choose to use the JaxRS annotations, you're using the Bean validation API validation, using JavaX.inject in your Micronaut app, 
mm -hmm. you can pretty much achieve quite a bit of portability um, in between applications, maybe not to the extent of Helidon. But this is, this, this is great news, actually. This goes in the right direction. So um, how old is it, the JAXA Resin Bean validation uh, introduction or inter yeah, addition to Micronode? The, the JAXRS, uh, JAXRS, it's been there for a while now. I'd say, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, maybe a year, okay. year and a half. Um, the, um, you know, the nice thing about Micronaut being compilation time and um, instead of runtime is that we can actually support uh, any annotation model, which makes it easier to kind of migrate in the future to, to support other things. Because mm -hmm. uh, what Micronaut does is essentially for JAXRS is at compilation time, it translates the JAXRS annotation set into the Micronaut one. Mm -hmm. So at runtime, um, uh, Micronaut is just looking at the, the, the normal Micronaut annotations and thinking that, <laughs> that it's using the normal Micronaut annotations. And we don't okay. have to, we don't have to complicate the runtime by saying, you know, if if this if this is a JAXRS annotation, do this. If this is a Micronaut annotation, do that. It's just uh, computer compilation time. Okay, so you have like annotation translator, right? Which uh, is able to translate whatever I like to actually the origin Micronaut annotation, right? Yeah, and, and we um, we support the the same thing for Spring. Mm -hmm. We introduced that quite early on, and it, actually that's another feature that uh, the Quarkus guys. Yeah, with the uh, Spring copy. DI layer. Uh huh. Uh, essentially replicated from Micronaut, which is uh, the translation layer of the annotations. Okay. And how hard it's to start with Micronaut? Uh, uh, do I need a specific, what I need? Is this a similar experience to Helidon, let's say, where I can just you know, uh, fire up a market type or, or, or CLI? What, what's the developer experience? We have a variety of different uh, ways for you to get started. You can go to micronaut.io and there's the generate button and there's a Micronaut launch where you've got like a project creation wizard. Mm -hmm. Online uh, project creation wizard, wizard, which I believe there exists um, things like that for microprofile and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so you can, through the web browser, create your app mm -hmm. and it'll you download a zip file or you can push it directly to GitHub uh, to get started. Uh, we also have a command line in interface, which is uh, you can install by SDK Man or, or Homebrew or mm -hmm. Mac ports in uh, you know, a on Windows I okay. think, as well, um, and you can install that and create applications offline, whether you're connected to the internet or not, not um, just with mn.create app or something like that. Okay, so what, it's, it's what, what it means to me is so actually I can use now a Micronode and uh, it uh, supports parts of the micro profile, so we we get almost additional runtime right to the collection. I mean, JAXRS bin validation. And at inject is is actually what I use eighty percent of my time. Yeah, all of those three things are supported today. A little uh, bit metrics, Prometheus metrics, open met, um, microprofile metrics. You this so we 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 don't support microprofile metrics. Mm -hmm. uh, we support uh, micrometer mm -hmm. or micrometer, mm -hmm. um, which we did again because spring, you know, uh, spring compatibility. Yeah. But as it happens, that turned out to be the right decision because even Quarkus uh, is switching to it, as far mm -hmm. as I understand. So mm -hmm. they switched to um, Micrometer. And, um, and you know, we expose the same metrics um, through Prometheus or, mm -hmm. uh, or whatever it may be. So, you know, we don't. We, and yeah, other than that, um, you know, uh, like you said, all of the annotations are the same. 
potentially mm -hmm. if you choose to if you choose to use the direct search ones you can and json b like the uh what are you using for a pojo to json serialization currently we use jackson okay uh, so jackson for uh, pojo serialization the only difference is that we we plug in a custom jackson module uh that 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 then integrates with our um compilation time support for bean introspections mm -hmm. uh, so that when you serialize and deserialize objects, it's doing so without reflection. But you um, could actually use the JSON-B annotations and translate them to Jackson, right? We could, in fact, do that, yeah. Be a nice, uh, <laughs> a nice contribution to do, yeah. <laughs> Are you still working on uh, Micronode actively, or? Yes, yes, I am. So since, uh, since July last year, I moved to Oracle. From from um, from the from, consulting company, right? To, to Oracle. From object computing, mm -hmm. yeah. And object computing and Oracle are collaborating actively uh, on Microsoft. So um, ah. I'm expanding expanding the Microsoft team here, and uh, we're up to three people. Hopefully, we'll be a lot more by the end of this year. And um, you know, we're making um, uh, massive investments in the Microsoft community and uh, working together with object computing. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of exciting upcoming work. Uh, one of the, the, the more exciting recent developments is we have uh, uh, worked on great v, uh, VS Code tooling extensions for Visual mm -hmm. Studio Code for Micronaut and for Java in general. Um, is it, is are, it already something uh, usable on, on Visual Studio Code or is it just in, oh, okay? It, it is absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, if you go to search for the GraalVM extension pack, Mm -hmm. on on the VS Code marketplace and it comes with the three um, extensions that we're publishing, which is a NetBeans backend for code completion and code navigation and so forth, a um, a Micronet extension for creating applications and the GraalVM extension for managing your GraalVM installation and computing native images. It's actually great news. Uh, didn't you? What, what my impression was that, uh, you know, your job is like, you know, the, to, to, to um, transport the Micronode goodness to Helidon, but uh, that you know the Micronode is still alive is a great news actually because the more runtimes we have, the better it is. No more competition is always good. Absolutely, no. The, the fact is is that uh, you know the Helidon folks are. Um, I'm working closely with them, and but you are um, a different team. But we are a different team. Ah, okay. Uh, the the um, the the Helidon team is part of the WebLogic group, and I work. Labs, which is oh, you know, okay. Charlie Graal VM, and but we want to support the Helidon team's journey into being um, more compatible with AOT um, ahead of time compilation um, concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's you know again, I'm eventually you know the hope is that we can get Micronaut more compliant with standards mm -hmm. to the point where Helidon can adopt it uh, instead of instead of Weld. Mm -hmm. For um, the uh, for the DI and dependency injection part, because Micronaut is very modular, right? The, the dependency injection part is just a small mm -hmm. module uh, mm -hmm. that you can optionally include. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know the 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 future in the hope that we have them integrated nicely, such that um, you can essentially create your Helidon app and use Micronaut for dependency injection and wiring and so forth. So, uh, so, so okay, can we say that? Uh... Oracle actively supports Micronaut, right? Absolutely. Yes, you can. That is uh, a great news. Oracle, Oracle active, actively supports Micronaut. In fact, if you go to uh, developer.oracle.com uh, mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's the Java Cloud page, 
you will see uh, you will see uh, the uh, mm -hmm. pasted in there. Mm -hmm. You'll see that the Micronaut and Heliodon are there side by side, and Micronaut is a, you know important technology for for Oracle, and uh, it's it. It, it's a much more natural fit for GraalVM native image um, and creating native images. Uh, it, it's actually interesting that that history because, you know, when we started building Micronaut, we had no idea the existence of GraalVM. Mm -hmm. It hadn't been announced yet. Um, but, um, uh, you know, as soon, soon as it was announced and we saw like, you know, oh, wow, you can you know, turn your Java apps into native images. Um, if your application, you know, meets these requirements xyz <laughs> xyz and the requirements at the time you know were like you know if you use reflection you have to do this if you use runtime bytecode generation you have to do this if you use dynamic class loading you have to do that and you know there were workarounds for each of those things um you know gradient native image does allow reflection it, it does allow run in, in the latest version that just came out it does allow runtime bytecode generation mm -hmm. but each of those things kind of required a little bit of extra work from the developer and we were like, wow, this is, um, we don't do any of these things. So mm -hmm. this should just work, right? Um, so we, we hooked up, uh, Micronaut to GraalVM and had it building native images in, in no time. And I think that, you know, using a, a framework like Micronaut that pre-computes your application infrastructure is a much better fit for AOT because, um, you know, it doesn't require work from the developer and, and everything that we build from Micronaut, uh, is automatically compatible with native image, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the problem with, uh, um, yeah, you have to know in GraalVM, you know, the dependencies are advanced, right? If you know the dependencies, yeah. you can pass for optimization. And this is the problem mm -hmm. with dynamic code or, uh, dependency injection. You actually don't know what gets injected, right? So you will have to do a yeah. lot, spend lots of time saying, XML probably or YAML, you know, here is the list of classes, optimize them for me, but you already know it. And um, yeah. So yeah, whatever you build with Micronaut uh, from, you know, if you build a module for Micronaut or a library or an application, it's automatically compatible with native image. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's a big deal. Vicky. And it scales a lot better. I think um, if you look at, for example, there is an effort to get Spring operational on um, on native image, and it's, and they've actually achieved remarkable things. Uh, I got to say, the Spring native project come a long way, mm -hmm. um, but it it works completely different to the way Micronaut does. What it does is it analyzes the conventions in your application and and kind of like handles a, a few use cases that are kind of known um, by kind of pre-configuring things mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but every time the Spring team comes with a new library or a new module or a new, they have to update and maintain this this kind of integration that is um, that is kind of hanging together by a thread. I, I wouldn't like to be the one maintaining that <laughs> and making sure it's you know updated and and working for every single use case. Mm -hmm. So um, whilst I think like uh, it scales better having a framework that just like is out out of the box. Yeah, and um, what. That, um, so I'm, as I said, I'm consultant, and uh, for me, the servers, uh, application servers, were as we as I said, were already uh, small enough not to be a problem because in you know, I mean, in most cases, 128 megs RAM was okay. And then you know, the they there were lots of uh, frameworks like uh, Whitefly Swarm and Thorntail, 
and this was for yeah. me you know i completely ignored this efforts i said okay what they're doing you know you're, you're saving 10 megs more they, they try to be smaller without changing the uh the architecture basically so they simplify a little bit and you know they get rid of one class loader but at behind the scenes the same happened so i was completely not interested and for me it was even worse because you get you know another runtime which is a little bit s smaller and it implies it is um, smaller, but it adds a huge amount of complexity. So what I really admired in Whitefly and Payara and Open Liberty, still, you get one package and you start coding, right? And with the yeah. uh, with the uh, micro frameworks, not Micronode, but you know these Whitefly Swarm and Payara Mike Payara Micro is different, but Whitefly Swarm, you got you know choose your right service size and you had to pick from the homepage. Do I need JaxOS with transactions? JaxOS without transaction was a crazy thing, and you created your own unique snowflake. And if there is an error, you hope, you know, someone else runs similar runtime and, and hope they are compatible. So I never, never liked the approach. But with yeah. the, but why they were so complex? Because shared deployment, you know, you said redeployment yeah. and the class loader isolation because the server were meant to, uh, to, to, uh, to have multiple isolated wars running on a single server, Absolutely. which are highly, highly isolated. And this introduced huge complexity. But now we have Docker containers. So I would say the container logic moves almost on the OS level. So now you can, you know, get rid of the complexity and optimize at build time. And this is the big deal. And if you do it from scratch right Absolutely. now, everything becomes, you know, reasonable, smaller, and this is the right choice. It's not like yeah. patching. You are starting from scratch and you are creating a simple system. And this Absolutely. is what I like. That's a, uh, you know, Micron has a fair amount of complexity in the compiler, I'm a, you know, uh, in terms of the compilation pr process. But at runtime, it's it's, it's really simple, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's flat class loaders, just a system class loader. Um, you can plug in different servers. You can plug in uh, Netty, and we have support for um, Jetty and other servers as well. But uh, the actual kind of runtime part is really, really simple. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and this, you know, reduction in complexity leads to reduction in in memory consumption and reduction improvements in performance. And uh, and there's more that can be done in that area, but I think that um, you know just you know the reduction in complexity is a big deal for these uh, modern yeah. frameworks like like Micronaut. What what I also heard that you are working somehow there will be uh, Helidon will be able to use the um, data access layer from Micronaut, so there is like collaboration. Yes, there, right? so so that's the other collaboration. In the meantime, you know we wanted to make sure the 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 Helidon team and the Helidon project had access to some of the nice features in Micronaut itself. So uh so there's a new Micronaut um, module for Helidon which allows you to plug in parts of Micronaut that including things like Micronaut data. Mm -hmm. Um Micronaut data, Micronaut validator as well. So if you prefer to use the bean validation from Micronaut, you can plug that in through Helidon's extensions. Um and um that that's a great way to build to bring you know existing functionality whilst we work on you know more broad, uh, broader integration with uh, the Helidon team. Full circle, right? So now the WebLogic yeah. team, which runs Helidon, gets the Spring functionality without the stack traces, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and 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 Micronaut Data actually like um, is an interesting project by itself because it works um, you know completely differently. To GORM and and to Spring Data. Okay. You know, you, you talked about uh, we talked about how GORM used the method missing approach to kind of do runtime translation mm -hmm. of the method into a query. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah, Spring Spring Data works more or less the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Micron Data, on the other hand, actually computes the queries uh, at compilation time. Yeah, because so, comp- you see the method and you can, you know, with the compiler, yeah, yeah this is... So so it hooks into the compiler and, and basically stores the query that has to be executed in the annotation metadata. Mm-hmm. So um, so at runtime, it's really simple. At mm-hmm. runtime, it's just, you know, get the query string. Mm-hmm. Um, we, pre- we can pre-compute the, the parameter binding between what is parameter and what, what, uh, what uh, you know, how in like SQL and, and in Hibernate, mm-hmm. we basically have set parameter, mm-hmm. set parameter mm-hmm. number. And so we pre-compute that, the, the kind of binding between that at compilation time. So it's just get query, get, get parameter from each index position, set, execute, and then uh, convert the result. Uh, what you could even do, right? Okay. You could even create a table set compile time. Yeah. It would, yeah. Be, te- would be technically possible, actually. Absolutely. And that's, that's another, um, area of, um, you know, exploration and, ah, okay. and innovation that we're, you know, I'm sure we will be looking at in, in the future. So, um, that, and, 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 and potentially the opposite, right? You could create the entities from the tables that completely. It's compile time, right? Because you can yeah. connect with JDBC, yeah? uh, you know, yeah. fetch the metadata and then, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This, uh, this is actually exciting, right? So what you can yeah. do right now, just, yeah. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, familiar, you get familiar API with with all the goodness. Okay, um, what was harder, you know, uh, creating the uh, the effects, uh, firework effects for the blaster uh, for the rocket launcher in Quake, or <laughs> s- starting Rails? <laughs> what was what was more work, you know, the uh, Hello World Grails or Hello World Fireworks in Rocket Launcher? Hello, Hello World Grails was definitely a lot more work. Uh, oh really? Uh, I, I thought was, yeah. I, I thought the, the the you know the the rocket launcher. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, no. The rocket launcher was a lot of copy and paste and tweak. Oh, okay. Tweak that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, and so forth. So, uh, you know, Grails was a was a, a, a lot longer period um, of you know work before we could realize something that complete. Right. I think mm-hmm. what surprised a lot of people with Grails. When it came out, we had like a lot of users, even when it was like 0.3 version 0.3, mm-hmm. um, because I think people were surprised at how complete it was at the time, like how how competitive it was with Ruby on Rails. And, and yeah, and the um, community was huge. There was a Grace podcast, I remember. There was a yeah. Grace books. It was like a huge ecosystem, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, what I would really like to do is now to reinvite you back and, and see what you've done, so what you achieved in a you know, few months. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. And now um, what I will do the, in my leisure is just to fire up uh, Micronaut and see what happens, because I'm really curious right now. And now with Jaxorescence and at, at Inject, I'm, I'm, I'm really motivated to try it out, you know? Yeah, uh, try it out and uh, you know, let us know what you think. Like, like I said, the... Um... The Jaxorace support is there. In fact, if you go to um, Micronaut Launch, which is the project generator, mm-hmm. you can add uh, Jaxorace as a feature from mm-hmm. there, uh, and then um, you know create Jaxorace uh, controllers and so forth. Yeah, or resources. Where people can find um, you know Twitter resources to your work, whatever you like, blog. Yeah. Where are you on the internet? Do you have, what is your Twitter handle? And um... my my Twitter handle is Graham Rocher. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me there. I, I tweet quite often. 
Okay. That various aspects of Micronaut and sometimes Grails and sometimes Java in general. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a YouTube channel and I, I've been meaning to like uh, pay more attention to it, but uh, I've, not, I've not been able to be as prolific as you have historically. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, uh, you, I'm sure you can give me loads of tips on how to be a prolific uh, YouTube, uh, YouTuber. On, sure. Um, uh, sometimes it is faster to record a video than fiddle with block, you know, and not yeah. to f and you are motivated to try something out and you can remember the thing. Otherwise, you know, what you will do, you will you lose a lot of time just fiddling with something in, in the background and forget what you did. And at yeah. least, you know, the stuff is documented. My block, um, but block is more work and something to record a video is almost nothing, right? If it will work, Micronaut with JaxRS, I will record a screencast, you can be sure, because, you know, then yeah. there is, is out there, this is where my thoughts and I get a feedback and I can send, you know, the link to, and sometimes I answer questions with screencasts. If clients ask me a question, I will record a screencast and send them back, you know. So this was just, this is this is very pragmatic. You will see there is no, I'm, I have various topics for, on my YouTube channel, which is, there. there is no, how to call it, there, there is no a theme. There are various topics, you know, all over the place. Awesome. Yeah. I will, uh, I will check it out. I'll check out some of the latest ones uh, and get some tips from them on how to do great video. Yeah. Just sit down, start your compiler. And then, you know, push the record button. So it was, I learned a lot. Thank you. It was uh, really interesting for me. And I'm really glad because we we got another interesting runtime called Micronaut. And it's still alive. I, I was a little bit afraid, you know, that it would say, okay, uh, we are not maintaining it anymore. But this is the great news for me. Oh, no, it's uh, it's more than alive. It's, uh, it is, uh, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting for the Java community because there's not many projects out there that are, you know, being openly collaborated on by a number of different companies. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Spring, Spring is obviously, you know, you know, being backed by VMware, Quarkus is Red Hat, mm -hmm. but um, Micronaut, you know, you have Oracle um, contributing to it significantly. You have object computing. Um, we have a, a Google are contributing directly to the Micronaut uh, GCP project, which is Google? integration. You said Google? Yeah. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Uh -huh. the, uh, directly contributing to Micronaut GCP, mm -hmm. which is um, writes great integration between Micronaut and Google Cloud. Uh, obviously, on the Oracle side, we're, we're doing Micronaut Oracle Cloud integration as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is, you know, a lot of um, uh, companies involved that are contributing to it, which I think is testament to that we're going in the right direction, right? That we've mm -hmm. touched a lot of nerves and that we have a lot of interest, right? Um, and um you know we're about to hit five thousand github stars i think so that's uh that's good there's, there's for, for, a, for, for a, a java related project is crazy yeah for a java project that shows, shows shows a lot of interest especially one that's only like a couple of years old or whatever um you should rename so, micronote io to micronote.js then you get fifty thousand stars for the same code base you know yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the javascript community is insane like that they start yeah. everything but uh, yeah, I think <laughs> the, the growth metrics is good. And also, you know, we've we got a lot of interest from a lot of different communities. So, you know, we look, sometimes we look at metrics on what, what gets created. And um, currently, like 30% of our audience is, is Kotlin developers, which is, which is interesting. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, we have a big following in the Kotlin community. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, Kotlin developers are, are maybe more used to annotation processes and compile time. Uh, plugins um, as they're used to in the Android uh, 
world. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, so yeah, we have a large Kotlin following and Micron Kotlin as well, which is integration with, uh, with integration with Kotlin. Um, and we have nice support for things like data classes and Kotlin and suspend functions. And and on, and in the latest version of Micron as well, talking about data classes, we have great support for Java records. I uh, just wanted to point that out. Oh, very so, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. The only thing which I don't like is what I heard is, you know, the dependency on Jackson annotations, but I, I already know your response then, you know, create the translator. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, if this would be a JSONB annotation, this would be great. I mean, yeah. This is what you can actually, you can ask, you know, the Helidon team, because Dimitri is one of the JSONB guys. Say, okay, I gave you my data repository, gave me back, you know, the JSONB compatibility, so you can have a deal between teams. <laughs> so JSON is actually a, a really interesting area of innovation that we're going to be looking at because I think, um, you know, one of the problems with Jackson um, is it kind of allows um, arbitrary serialization and serialization of objects, mm-hmm. which has uh, led to you know, a number of different CVs over the years and security vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and so forth. Not all of them Jackson's fault, but, you know, there, there is the whole uh, allowing any kind of object to be arbitrarily serialized in serialized to JSON, I think, is mm-hmm. uh, problematic and um, from, can be problematic from a security perspective. And there's potentially interesting things that can be done in compilation time to alleviate some of that by kind of, um, uh, you know, computing ahead of time what, what can and cannot be, mm-hmm. um, you know, read and written to JSON. Uh, so I think that's another area of exploration amongst my, you know, my later as well. Um, so, uh, so yeah, many, many exciting things to come in from Micronaut in, in general in, in the next year. Perfect. Thank you for your time. It was really a pleasure to, to, to chat with you. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. It was awesome. <laughs>